0: All right, you guys, we are going to be this morning looking at 2 Corinthians, or as President Trump likes to call it, 2 Corinthians. You guys remember that? God bless him. Um, Although I I have heard that actually in England they call it 2 Corinthians. Did you know that? So maybe he's just British and not just making stuff up as he goes along. Who knows? Um, Okay, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. And when I say we're in it, what I mean by that is... um, What we're trying to do every week is just do a one-week overview, unless it's Romans, which we give two weeks, but a one-week overview on a book of the New Testament in the hopes that you might then go and read that book of the New Testament. Um, And the the idea is if we we cover it here now, then in the week following, if you choose to read it, you're just going to have a little bit of an easier insight into you know things to look for, things to notice. So as we go through it, we'll always do one week here and then you can read it the following week and kind of catch up. And as I've said, if you've not been here before, we've done, I don't know, this is maybe our sixth or seventh or eighth one. They're all in here, these little these sheets that we're producing. I just make them one a week. And they're all up here for anything we've done. So if you're missing one or you missed a week, they're there. And then the audio that goes behind it is on our website. If you go to chsroanoke.com, you can get those, okay? So this week we're looking at Second Corinthians. Uh, last week, what did we do? First Corinthians, okay? So this is, this is essentially a follow-up to that first letter, the letter to the church at Corinth. And, uh, okay, bonus points. Where, did, where in the book of Acts could you read about the beginning of the church in Corinth? Anybody remember that? Mm, anybody got it? Uh, maybe you want to guess? You want to take a stab? 17. Close. 18? Even closer, because that's right. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 18, I mean, for our, our, what? Acts 18 is where Corinthians, the church in Corinth, gets started. And so the first letter, how would you characterize the tone of the first letter? What do you remember about 1 Corinthians? Just kind of the emotional signature of it. Robin? They were lovely. Yes. Yeah, it's a highly corrective letter. Paul says in Second Timothy, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And this is more in the rebuke and correct zone. 1 Corinthians is. 2 Corinthians has some of that. It's going to have some of that tone, but it is unique in Paul's writings. I think it's, it's, it's very distinct. Some of his letters you might say, this one's like that, this one's like that, this one's like that. But 2 Corinthians is unique because it is far and away Paul's most poetic letter. If you're used to reading, if you think of Paul in terms of, I don't know, things that are more didactic, Romans is very didactic. And it is emotionally different. Remember, when we looked at Romans, we saw it is... Do you remember what is the emotional engine that drives the book of Romans? Do you remember this? There is something there. It just manifests differently. Jewish brothers aren't coming. That's right, Bob. Like so, he is. Paul is really torn up. The the Jewish people, those of his own race, are not responding to the gospel. And work out how does this work? How does it that God has given them all these blessings and they're not getting? And so, fueled by that, he makes this very didactic, very logical, very lawyerly case through Romans. First, Second Corinthians is different. Second Corinthians is by far his most poetic letter, and the reason it seems that it is so poetic is that Paul is in enormous amount of pain when he writes it. So I want to show you that. We're going to spend a little more time looking at the actual text because I want you to catch the the vibe of this. It is far and away Paul's most painful letter. It is his most poetic letter. Paul is hurting. And you may have noticed in your own life that, when well, we're, we're wired in different ways. You may respond differently in pain. But some people in pain, poetry is often born. What's up, Harrison? Glad you're here. Um... Poetry is often born of pain, and we see that here. When I say poetic, it's not that he's writing everything in verse, but his language is very picturesque. It it begins, I've got it here, this top thing. It starts like this. You kind of get a sense of it. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And we're off to the races, right? Um, And Paul is going to talk over and over and over again about the suffering he's enduring. And it's going to cause him to kind of um, be a little more, like I said, more poetic. Let's look at this. And I I bolded. We'll just kind of skim through and get a sense of this. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Now, in addition to the despair, the suffering, what do you see there in that paragraph that is braided in with Paul's great grief? Hope, who said that? Robin, hope, right? You see, this permeates the letter. This is not just a grouchy, you know, miserable letter. He's very honest about it. But he endlessly is saying, you know what, it was beyond our ability to endure. We despaired. And yet he sees this idea. I mean, we talked about this before. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Uh, what was it? Philippians, I think, that I pointed this out, that one of the things that pervades Paul's letters is this idea of the cruciform life, right? And what shape does the, go- what, what shape does the gospel take? What letter does gospel take? is the shape of the gospel. You just watch it. Once you Lily's got it exactly right. It's the the letter V. He does this over and over and over. You just watch it. Once you kind of get your eyes open to it, you're going to see it everywhere in Paul's writing. That Jesus went to the lowest place and was exalted to the highest place. Christianity is about death and resurrection. And so when I say that 2 Corinthians is a book about pain and suffering, there's lots and lots of the downstroke, of the V. But Paul always understands that, look at that. Look at what he says. Uh, In our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. That's the downstroke. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He expects a resurrection, but he is experiencing death, right? When you are, when you yourself are on the downward slope, and you say, this is just terrible, and I hate this, and it is miserable, Second Corinthians might be a good book to look at, in particular if you can see within it the anticipated upstroke. It's not just a it's not just a backslash. It is the letter V, and the, it comes back up to the top. You just gotta wait for it, right? So he says this. Look else what he says. He says, uh, oh, there's so many lines in here. Go down to the very bottom of that right column. He says, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves. In every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. And he goes on to a bunch of things that, that they're doing that, are, that he, they're doing well. And then he says, uh, "Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown. dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. poor." yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. It just, the whole letter is this way. And in fact, without even looking at it, I'm curious if there's any passages from 2 Corinthians that you recall as having this signature. Maybe you've seen them and that's fine, but are, before we even started this morning, can you think of places in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about his pain that have kind of leapt off the page to you in the past? Others you remember? The uh, um, you know, where... Yes. excellent yes take a look at it. Harrison's getting this exactly right look at look at this this is uh where is that one that is going to be four eight. listen to this so and he says we're hard pressed he, every one of these he's going to say it's bad but it's not that bad it's bad but it's not that bad he says we're hard pressed on every side but not crushed we're perplexed but not in despair we're persecuted but not abandoned we're struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Can you guess why? Think of the V. Why do we carry around in our body the death of Jesus? Yeah, look at it. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. This is so central to understand Paul's theology. We die so that we may live. Jesus died on a cross. He was raised from the dead. We will walk through endless difficulties in this world but we do so in the anticipation of the stroke going back up, right? We always carry on in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Do you see that? what he did there, that last line of that? It's fascinating. The V-shaped gospel, sometimes we die anticipating that we will live But that's not what he said in the last line. It's sometimes we die so that you may live. And the gospel itself is endless sacrifice, considering others' needs as more important than our own. And Paul's like, and so we drink it, and we just keep taking the hit. However, at the time that he writes this letter, he has taken the hit so many times that it just, it's ever on his lips. You ever been in that place? Where it's like, man, this has just been a season that I can't, I can't even describe to you how painful this has been. That's what's going on here. Okay, so that, everything that you read in this letter, you've got to know that Paul is writing from a place of profound pain. If you'd ask me, where does Paul talk about suffering? The one that most readily comes to mind is chapter 11. So let's take a look at that one before we kind of move on. This is where, um, well, do you know what his... Uh, it's not just a letter about pain. It's not just a letter you know, expressed in poetic terms. But do you, know what, do, you, do you know what the message is in 2 Corinthians? What his, what probably the number one thing he's trying to convey to the Corinthians is? Uh, say it again, Bob. His authority. His authority. Very good. Uh, unpack that a little bit. As an apostle, there were some doubting him questioning as his Yes, very good. So what Bob's saying is, is exactly right. He's, so Paul is writing to defend the authenticity, the legitimacy, the genuineness of his authority as an apostle. Because there are people, there's these super apostles that are, that are more impressive than he is. Right? I guess they're prettier than he is. I don't know what their deal is. But whatever it is, Paul has writing, and it's so painful because he starts this church. And he has to... He has to write and it's, it's pretty humiliating. You get the sense that he's deeply humiliated. And in the midst of that humiliation, he's saying, w- "How? what could I have done better to have won your hearts? Like, what is lacking in my ministry? And in the, in the midst of that, he does this thing in chapter 11. He says, I've worked much harder. He's comparing himself to the super apostles, to the ones that they like better than him. I've worked much harder than them. I've been in prison more frequently than them. I've been flogged more severely than them. And I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Okay, so as you go through this, as you, as you read this, you guys, there's so... got him. Bob's got em, Okay, never mind, sorry. Um, there is... Watch for it. You'll see it. I mean, look at this. It's chapter 1, 1, 4, 4, 5, 5, 6, 7. I mean, it just runs through the whole book, okay? So as you go through it, you just might make some notation in your Bible. Paul is in pain. He's hurting, okay? Or, as you're going through it, open it up here, you might begin to notice just the poetic language here. If you just take a look, and I'm going to just give you a minute, if you just scan through that left page where it says, Paul the poet. This was, when I say poet, it's not that it's all written in verse. As I said, it's more just that he's writing in very picturesque language. Okay? So you've got things like the opening paragraph that I read to you. You've got also, in in chapter 2, he says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? That is way too flowery for any of Paul's other writings. Do you, do you feel this? This is not the way he talks to the Galatians, right? Galatians, he's like, listen, man, I wish these guys would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's really like strident, <laughs> But to the Corinthians here in this letter, it is all of this flowery language because he's hurting. And he's, we, we just found in human experiences, sometimes prose just can't express the depth of our pain. Jars of clay, you know the whole jars of clay imagery? That's Second Corinthians. Um, uh, this kind of flowery language. For Christ's love compels us. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Uh, where else? Let's see, other huge things. This line, probably the most poetic thing that Paul ever says about giving. We'll come to this in a minute. We'll we'll get more into the giving side. But he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You feel that's lyrical, right? I mean, just don't tell me. This whole, this is the vibe that writes through this whole book. It's very lyrical. It's very poetic. Um, and it's all drawn out of his pain, okay? So as you go through, you might, this was a hard, this section was hard. Whenever I do these, I have the, I have the mission of making everything fit exact. Cut that one, or four pages, right? And so sometimes Gina and I will look at this, and I'm like, well, cut that one, cut that one. Oh, I'm not gonna cut that one, and we figured out, okay? So there's more even than we've got here, but as you go through, you just might watch for the, where, where, do you, where does it begin to be poetic? And you might note those. Yeah, Stuart. Speaking Greek at all? Um, the translations what we read. Just, just, are we missing it way more because we don't read? Uh, yeah. Even more poetic when you read it in its form. Yeah. So Stewart's question is, you know, we're, anytime you read poetry, the translated poetry, you lose something, right? Um, and he's 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 wondering, is it true that? Do you think that when we read this in Greek, if we if we if you all could read Greek as well as I can read Greek? which is I can't read Greek at all, Okay, then um, I would imagine that we would see more, more than that and that the, author, the translators have had to do that. But I, I can't read Greek any more than I can read Spanish, so uh, I have no idea. But I, I, I would imagine that's the case, that there's probably some, you know, whether things rhyme, I don't even know what kind of poet, you know, poetic style there is, but I'm sure that's true. Yeah. So maybe learn Greek and let us know. See what you find, okay? So these two things, if you really understand this letter, it is painful in it's poetry. It is painful in his poetry. That is really the undergirding like, framework of this thing, okay? But then, having been pained and poetic, he really has a whole bunch of messages he wants to convey, okay? So let's take a look at some of those. Well, actually, let me pause. You guys good on the pain and the poetry? Anybody want to make, have any insights you want to throw in here that we're missing? Painful poetry, painful poetry. Okay. The biggest thing that he's trying to convey, and it's heartbreaking. It is, it's pretty pathetic, honestly, if you read it, is his defense of his own apostleship. That's your, that's your second big thing. Over and over and over again, Paul is writing to these people and he comes across with this, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's, no other, it's just humiliating that Paul, who plants this church, Paul, who has suffered for these people, Paul, who has given his life for these people, who has entered into death again and again on their behalf, has to prove to them that he is for them, has to prove to them that he is worthy. Um, some of you who are parents might have some inkling of what this feels like, right? The older you are, the, 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 no, the greater the number. Have you ever had to defend your authority to your children? <laughs> has that ever happened? Okay? Have you ever lived, have you lived long enough that this kid who you, you're literally the reason they exist, okay? You are the one who diapered their butt. You are the one who took care of their boo-boos. You are the one who cared for them when they were sobbing when their first girlfriend broke up with them. You have become persona non grata in their life, right? Do you know this? This feeling, that's what's here, right? And you you read it, you're like, my gosh, just take a look, Okay? Uh, how much time do we have? How much? Okay, we can do this. Um, take a look at what he's doing here. Um, now, you know, we'll do this. We'll do, at your tables, just take a minute, and you can skip through. I just want you to have a chance to read through some of these. So at your tables, take a look, and you can pick, you can, you can skim through a bunch, and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask you in a minute if any of these strike you as particularly humiliating, okay? Um, go ahead and just take a look at that right page under um, the defense of Paul's apostleship. There's just tons of examples. Alright, that give you enough time to kind of get acquainted here. So look at these things. I'm curious. do, do any of these insults strike you in particular way? Yeah, Gil. Eleven twenty-two to twenty-three. So they, it goes like this. It says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. They is again this comparative group, these so called super apostles, the people they like more than they like Paul. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. This is specifically this comparison game. It's not just that you're not very good, but we found someone that we like better than we like you, is what's going on. What strikes you about that girl? <laughs> Okay, okay, he's trying to defend himself, and I lost the last sentence. Say it louder. Like how a younger kid would defend himself against his brother. That's right. I'm more placed than that guy. I'm more placed. than that That's right. So it, 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 it's ridiculous. It's super humiliating. Like, can you imagine if, like, just in, in, your, in your world, right? At your company, wherever you work, in your sphere, it's your company. You started the business, and your employees are like, well, why should we listen to you? You're like, because I own the thing, because it's my, I because I built it, right? Like, it's dangerous, and yet that's the exact situation that he finds himself in, for sure. Yeah, Anne. I think in all of this, another thing that's driving him is he's, he's fighting for the very souls. He feels like it seems as though false teachers are... He go down the dark hole he's trying to That's right. say this is me, you know, for the truth. Abs okay, so this is really important I'm I'm so glad you're bringing this dimension into it. Because Paul is not a guy that is like collecting all ministry and all power and authority into himself he's constantly giving things away he leaves titus here now titus you're in charge of Crete. he sends timothy over here and timothy gets in charge of this whole circle around ephesus he's constantly sending out. he wants other people to be doing the job but these guys are showing up just like in galatia in galatia he's got this contest where people are false teachers are coming in they're teaching false things they're pretty they're impressive they're you know they're um they they appeal to our base nature but they're not actually teaching you the gospel. And he's got to shut that down over here. And then he's got to shut the same thing down over here. So you get the impression when Paul is in prison, he's in jail getting beaten. He's like, you know what? Being in jail is rough. But the good news is the gospel is being preached. And so I rejoice. Right? He's willing to take the hit. But with this situation, he's not saying, well, I want credit. I want, I want... He, what he knows is that the, bad, the, the, com- the competitors, they're not actually preaching the true gospel. And he's just losing his mind. If they had been preaching the true gospel... Paul would have taken that. He would have drank it because he did it over and over and over again. But here he's like, you're following these guys that are wolves in sheep's clothing. How is that possible? He wants to woo them and win them so that he can benefit them. This is persistently the case with Paul. He is always willing. I mean, the guy is a beast. beaten. He takes the hit. He suffers it. And then they finally let him get out of jail. Then he throws a tantrum. And the reason he throws a tantrum on the way out of jail instead of the way into jail is because he knows that as he leaves, he wants to leave it safe for the people behind him. He will suffer for the spread of the gospel, and then he will demand his rights for the, for the good of others, and it's never the other way around. He's just, he's just absolutely extraordinary in this. Okay, another one that strikes you? Jennifer? Actually, it's just a big, it's a general strike. You know, he was much more of a writer than an orator, and if he had been a great orator, we would not have any of his rights. Yes, that's right, that's right. And so, we, and so what Jennifer's saying is, so there is some evidence based on these accusations. If you look over here um, in chapter 10, uh, let's see, uh, chapter 10, verses one to two, and then seven to eight, I, Paul, who, quote, am timid when face to face, but bold when away. And then then later on, somebody says about him, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. The assumption is that that might actually be a fair judgment, it's painful. It's not very nice, but it might be true that Paul in person just wasn't that attractive. I mean, he may have been, maybe had something wrong with his eyes. There were not, there's all these little clues we can piece together. And so his great gift, he was incredible one on one in ministering the gospel, but he wasn't, um, it's kind of like Saul. Like Saul is head and shoulders taller than everybody, and we just, we only elect people for president if they're like 6'2 or better. You know what I'm talking about? There's this thing, he didn't have that thought. Thing, but he has this, all this enormous value. And it is true that because he's writing these letters, we get this permanent record that we wouldn't have had otherwise, right? But nevertheless, it's painful, right? And they're unimpressed by Paul because there's something flashy, there's something that wouldn't play well in an Instagram influencer kind of context, right? And that's, that's the vibe that he's, that he's dealing with. People are valuing superficial things that Paul essentially is not that good at. Right? Okay. One more that it strikes you here before we move on. There's kind of a tone of, uh, not sarcasm, but getting close to a little bit of tongue-in-cheek a crafty fellow that I am. Oh, yes. Throughout all these things, even the reference to the super apostles and quote marks, whether, I don't know if there's quote marks in Greek, but he refers to them as hyper apostles. is what the Greek says. That's right. That's right. And what's galling to him is he's like, okay, I may not be as fitting you. You like the guys that are, that are stealing from you. You like the guys that are lying to you. He's like, I guess I should have done that. Would, that have, would, it, would you like me better if I was ripping you off? Right? So it's all of that pain. That, now, that pain is, of course, woven into this first pain. Right? But it's not the only thing going on. There's just a ton of stuff going on. So when you read through it, just read through the incredible humanity of this letter. We'll, we'll come to you in one second, Kelly. And we've, I've mentioned to you this, I've mentioned this several times. This, this, I, if I were God, I would have written a systematic theology textbook. Okay? I would have just laid it out so it's nice and clear and you can grasp it easily. I am not God, and there's numerous benefits to that. But <laughs> we get this incredibly human, embodied, yea, even incarnated scripture, right? That is drawn out of Paul's very personal experience. This is still God's word. All scripture is God breathed. Even this very human, very um, personal letter is the, is the book that he chose to give us. So as you read it, we're, we read it things to extract the systematic theology from it, right? But it would be a mistake if you think that's all we're supposed to find there. We are finding what is it like to be a fallen person in a fallen world trying to, trying to work out this V-shaped gospel. So kind of embrace the humanity of the letter. Kelly Sue? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if you mentioned this, but this is this is Second Corinthians, but it's actually probably his third letter to them. Yes, I have not mentioned that. So yeah, you want to unpack that a little? So there's uh, there's evidence or suggested that there's probably a lost letter between First and Second Corinthians, and all of his letters to Corinthians are delicate. So I think it's really amazing that he even wrote Second Corinthians in light of like, you know, at some point when there's enough disputing and you're saying something hard <clears throat> and people are rejecting it, you kind of want to just back away. You kind of want to shy away from the situation. But he's bold and he's still entering into it. He's still persisting in the truth because he cares about the truth of the gospel. Yes. So, so well said. Let me just restate it in case the recording didn't get it all that well. but. But a, there's a, probably there's a letter between First and Second Corinthians that's, that we just don't have. Um, and that's fine. In the providence of God, uh, it's not Scripture. We don't, we don't feel like it's a lost part of Scripture. It's just a lost part of things that Paul did. Not, not everything that Paul did was authoritative divine work, right? This letter was never recognized by the church as being part of Scripture, so we don't, we don't care about it. But it shows us, Kelly's pointing out, it shows up Paul's incredible persistence, right? They are responding negatively to him. Probably because he's critiqued them. And nobody likes being rebuked, right? Don't miss that. He's exercising his authority, correcting their flaws and their failings. They don't like it and they're reacting to it. And rather than just flushing them and moving on to a new city, Paul will labor. He will take the hit. He will suffer to be in there with them, right? Even though it's hard, even though it's painful. Remember, this is the city where God said, keep on speaking, do not be afraid, do not be silent." That was all that Acts 18 passage. It's the same thing. It's like, hey, don't stop writing these letters, Paul. Don't write. Don't write this church off. Stay in it. It's going to be okay. And he does, even though it's incredibly painful to him. Cool. Let me show you one more thing on the very back here. Um, it's not the most important thing, but it's interesting, and I'll just put it in here now, because of the idea of the humanity of these letters. Paul has a tendency. You may have noticed this in multiple places in Paul's letters. Paul interrupts himself. Paul loses his train of thought and he runs off into some other direction. Have you noticed this? It's odd. It is not like these letters often lack what you might do in your final draft. Okay. Um, so he does it in Romans 5 when he's talking. Well, here, I'll show you a couple of these. Go to, if you go to Romans 5, this shows up kind of like an embarrassing number of times. And I want you to think about the theological implication of this. Romans 5, he says, uh, one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and then he interrupts himself. And that's why you've got a dash right there before verse 13. Before the four laws given, sin was in the world, sin is not taken into account. When you say therefore just as, you must also say so also. But he doesn't get to it. He interrupts himself, and he goes off on this side trail. It's very odd. If you, grammat- if you grammatically follow it, it's strange. He does the same thing. Uh, you go to Ephesians 3. You'll see him do it There. Uh, this one's really obvious. Ephesians 3, 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Then he's like, oh, that reminds me. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that is given to me for you, da-da-da-da. And he doesn't, you hear it? And he just totally interrupts himself. And he doesn't pick it up again until, uh, where does he finally think? Uh, where does he pick it up? 14. All the way down to fourteen. Yes, you're right. Then he finally says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, and now we're back on track. So everything in there was like this little bird that he was chasing, right? He does that here in this letter. So if you go to 2 Corinthians, and I I listed it down here, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And then his mind trails off, And he doesn't pick up this conversation all the way until chapter 7. It's like for five chapters. Finally, in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, oh yeah, back to that. When we went to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts us, comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. Everything that happens in the middle there, that five chapter is like a digression. And then he gets back in. So what that, well, what do you think, what does that tell you about this book? About the whole thing? How do you how do you understand this, Al? Or do you understand? I, there's a lot of emotion in there, but I think not said. those trains. he's thinking about maybe fragments of things and he hasn't said. And on the other hand, I think it just shows he's human, he's aging, and he has 80. <laughs> yes, yes. And, 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 that, and let's double click, let's, not to mock the aging of the ADD, we'll just mock the humans because that's, 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 that's a process, right? Is that this book has a genuinely human author, right? Some people will come onto the scriptures and see this written by man and not written by God. Some will come on and think it's just some like divinely dictated thing It's written by God and, and not really by men. But we, ha- we have an incarnated scripture. Jesus was genuinely human and genuinely God. And the scriptures are Genuinely of human origin, and genuinely of divine origin, and these weird, quirky, idiosyncratic human features are, are part of the design. It really is. It's completely trustworthy, entirely reliable. But it is—it was produced by a dude who lost his train of thought, got distracted, changed the order he wanted to put things in because it's written by a human being. It really is a human book, and it really is sovereignly over, overseen. I got It is God-breathed. It's both. You just got to deal with it. It's just weird. Catherine? That's for our benefit, so we can identify. Right, right. Jesus became like us. He dwelt among us. And the book that we have is written by one of us, by several of us, as it were. Okay? Alright, so what do we got? Okay, we got good. Okay, big message here. Kind of scary, which is, hey, I'm a bit an apostle. You'll see that. Maybe the second biggest message is kind of scary, which is, hey, I'm coming, so get ready right? There's a big warning. There's a visit coming. I've written you a letter and I rebuked you. I've written you a letter right now and I'm rebuking you, but we need to have a conversation. And so, you know, like prepare the bedroom, okay? So look at this. I've got it listed under here as warning of a corrective visit. Look at how many times he lets them know. Um, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some of the people who think that we live by the standards of this world. He says, such people should realize that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Now that I'm ready to visit you for the third time, da, da, da. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. Da, da, da. I'm afraid when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier. This will be my third visit to you on my return. This is why I write these things, so that when I come. He's like, I'm coming, I'm coming. It's, it's a little bit of, a, you know, wait till your father gets home, except your father's the one telling you. Like, <laughs> dad's coming home, so get ready, right? So again, you, we see this is, well, what would you say, where would you put this? In terms of Paul's, uh, what were Paul's hardest communities? What were the places where Paul had the most tense relationship? Do you have a sense of this from the letters? First, Certainly Corinth, for sure. This is up there. This might be number one, might be number two. Do you know who, else, who, who competes with these guys for like being the thorn in Paul's side? Galatians, Galatians yeah. Yeah, I think so. And now Galatians is weird because, do you guys know this? Did we do Galatians yet? We haven't done Galatians yet. Galatia is not a city, it's a state. So it's, every letter is written to a church, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus. Galatians is to the churches in Galatia. You just notice that. You look at the first couple of verses of each one. It's a big region. But the Galatians is where things were tough. I would say Galatians, the whole region of Galatia and then Corinth are, are his most painful, most difficult letters It is only to the Galatians that he threatens emasculation, so that's that's up there, you know, right, right. It's it's rough. I I think it's it's, they're definitely number one and number two. These are these are the hardest spots. How about the other side? What what was his what was his easiest church? What was his happiest, most blessed church? Okay, Philippi is interesting. Philippians is his happiest letter. It's a joyful joyful letter despite the fact that he's in prison um and he's he's exhorting them to joy so he's it's a happy letter um but i don't know that there's this, i think there's another group that gets more affection from him in his writings yes. Yes. he loves ephesians because he loves timothy right there's an enormous amount of warmth there but i think it's thessalonians if you read through first thessalonians um we haven't done that one yet either right no? Yeah, we got, we got a lot to do. When, you get, when we get to first Thess, you'll see... Just, well, if you just read it, right? So much warmth and love. So they really do exist on a continuum. Like, everybody loves all their children equally. You know, but... You got the... This one is hard, and this one is easy, right? These, Corinthians and Galatians, these ones are hard. Thessalonians, they were a dream, even though we had corrections for them. Okay. Um, at a practical level, this exhortation to generosity, this is... People, when we preach on giving, we tend to preach out of 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians has lots of language about giving. We love Who, who, is our, who, who are the people that are the model givers of the New Testament? Macedonia. Macedonians. In what city in particular? Philippi, right? And so they're going to get referenced here. He's going to talk about the Macedonians. He's going to say, basically, why can't you be more like your brother, right? That's going to happen here. It's that famous, famous line of, that I already quoted that you know the grace of our Lord, though he's rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's in this letter. Lots of language. Later on, chapter 8, 8, 9, you're going to see lots of stuff about giving. So when you get there, um, read. When you get to 2 Corinthians, if you read it this week, when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, um, just get out your checkbook before you start reading, okay? And just be ready to go. Just f- start filling it out before you read it, and then you know, fill in the number sign as you need. Um, it's also going to be this. Um, I put down here at the very bottom, declare the gospel. Uh, Kelly, what's your favorite part of 2 Corinthians? The whole interruption. The whole interruption. It really is. Kelly and I, many of you know, Kelly and I used to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. and We were, both went to school at James Madison. And this is the passage right here. 2 Corinthians 5 or 3 to 5 is really the part of the Bible that God used to call Kelly into, you know, into ministry. And I don't think she's alone in that. This whole passage, when you read that, that interruption, this thing from chapter three to chapter five, but really climaxing in chapter five, it is, it's glorious. As Paul is, he's in this midst of enormous pain. He's suffering terribly. He's feeling super devalued by the Corinthians, but he writes this rhapsody of glory, of what it is to be involved with things that will literally matter in a billion years. You can spend your time on things of passing consequence or you can, every one of you can, do things that will matter forever. This is the the height passage, I think. He says, this is chapter five. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul is saying there is deeply important. He's saying that when you became a Christian, it was necessarily a two-gift box. You were, number one, reconciled. And number two, you became a reconciler. There is no separation. If you are reconciled, you are necessarily, ipso facto, a reconciler. And then he says it again. And so, therefore, is what I mean by that. A person becomes a follower of Christ and they're reconciled to him they become a reconciler. And as a reconciler, they move walk into somebody else's life and they help that person become reconciled to God. And when they are, they become a reconciler. And therefore, they walk into somebody else's life and help them become reconciled to God, at which point they become a reconciler. ...him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this whole idea that when the gospel came to you, necessarily, it came to you on the way to someone else. That whole, if you follow through and you get into that section, really chapters three to five, just read it. It is just the height of God's eternal purposes, and that He's taken the central purpose for which He made the world and He dropped it in your lap. Boom. And says, You're reconciled. Will you be a reconciler? It's just, it is exalted language. So this week, if you choose to, those are some of the things to watch for. Pain, poetry, Paul's defense of his apostleship, the warning of the visit, the sweetness of the gospel. Oh, and then this too, this is a funny little thing, just a weird little note. Just the very, very last verse of Second Corinthians is one of these beautiful Trinitarian statements. You'll hear it here. I mean, anybody ever says, the Bible never mentions the word Trinity. Of course it doesn't. But it says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There is a linking here of the three persons of the Godhead. It says may God be with you. That's what's going on there. So it's a great little Trinitarian wrap up when you get to the very last verse. Cool? Alright, read it this week and next week we're going to do, Gina, what are we doing next week? Peter, first Peter, Peter next week. Alright, see you guys.